Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In three, two, one. Natalie Hodges doesn't remember a time when she wasn't playing the violin. After all, she started when she was like four years old. I know it was a long time ago and you were just a little kid, but do you remember how you felt about starting this instrument? Yeah, I I was so indifferent. Like, I didn't care. (laughs) (laughs) But I do remember that I loved performing Mm -hmm. from... Like, basically from when I was very, very little. And I guess the first time that I ever performed, I don't remember this, it was like a little recital for my teacher, like my teacher studio when I was like four years old, five years old. Um, And I was playing a song called Spinach Green and Goopy. Makes me feel so droopy. It has two notes. And Did uh, did Beethoven write that? I think think it's one of his lesser known compositions, yes. So I was playing that and I had to be dragged off stage because I just wouldn't stop repeating the the little two note refrain. So <laughs> performance was something that from at least when I was little I I apparently loved. What did you love about it? Was it kind of like the adoration? Yeah. I'm sure I loved that um <laughs> part of it. I think also I kind of liked this feeling that I just had to kind of get into the zone and do something. I remember actually liking the adrenaline rush of yeah, that. And yeah. I liked the fact that like there's people there who are watching and they expect something and then kind of rising to meet that. And then, of course, that's what became very difficult. Natalie poured everything she had into making her dream of becoming a professional violinist come true. But as she got better and better, her performance anxiety got worse and worse. So Natalie was forced to choose between her dreams and her mental health. And she would learn that there were even deeper demons she needed to face. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. And this is Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. Natalie Hodges grew up in Denver in a close-knit family. She's the oldest of four kids, and all of them played the violin. They bonded over their love of classical music, which was really fostered by their mom. She loves classical music, and she loved the violin. She played a bit when she was younger as well. and so, But for financial reasons, or a lot of different reasons, she wasn't able to... Mm. Um, pursue it. And a lot of times people are like, oh, well, did she just transfer that dream onto you? And and that's actually not the case. Once I said, like, I really want to do this, she really organized a ton of her life around being able to to give me the opportunities that I wanted. Wow, it sounds like she she just like loved you and supported you, right? I'm there sure was, you have a lot of good memories around that. I do. There was so much love in it. And it was a way in which I knew I was really loved to have my dream be supported in that way. When I was in high school and at this point was really, really serious about the violin, was entering a lot of competitions, was practicing five hours a day at minimum, I had to make that time by staying up really late at night. Otherwise, I uh, there just wouldn't be enough time in the day. And what I would do is I would actually 
ask my mom like if I needed help, if I could wake her up and if she would sit there and listen to me or and just sit there so I wouldn't be alone. And that sounds incredibly selfish and it <laughs> was, but that was honestly one of the most, I think, extraordinary measures of, of love that I've been shown in my life and that I would also hope to be able to, to show to my child or show to her again in some way. Hmm. Your dad, on the other hand. Yeah. Um, that was harder. I think he, um, he, I think, liked the notion in some ways that we were good, my siblings and I were good at music, but um, he didn't like basically how much of our family life and our family resources, quite frankly, like went into that. Mm-hmm. And it really became... Actually, it's just a, a, a point of really terrible tension in my parents' marriage. Um, and I think because of that, uh, there was just a tremendous amount of guilt and anxiety that I felt. Yeah. Um, so that was hard. There was also a, a big cultural difference between him and my mom. And I think the music maybe represented or that played out in the music as yeah, well. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah. So uh, my mother is Korean. She was born in Seoul and uh, she immigrated when she was about four, coming out of um, the immense trauma of Mm -hmm. the Japanese occupation of Korea um, and then of the Korean War. There's a tremendous amount of strife that that her family fled. She would always say this, like the, the ultimate privilege would be to give her children what she wasn't able to have. Like the reason she wasn't able to um, continue playing the violin was her father. He was terminally ill and he passed when she was 13. So from then on, she was working lots of jobs. And then it was really important for her to get a job that would allow her to continue to do that. So she eventually became a lawyer. So I think for her, the idea that she could give us something that wasn't just about us having to scrabble for our survival that was so important to her, and that's what, um, for her, I think that felt like mobility. Yeah, and co- and I guess culturally, it's you know, you're, and your dad's white, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and so he didn't white. have those experiences, right? And yeah. in terms of the gratitude around being able to do things in this country. Yes, I think from my dad's. And it's not just his, it's like his whole family's perspective. I mean, they had ancestors who came on the Mayflower and they lived in Boston. They kind of mm-hmm. have this, I think for them, there's always been the sense that we're, we've are we already made it, like we're already here. And a lot of that is a function of just who we are innately. And, mm. and so I think he didn't see the need to pour so much into the effort of, of the music. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Natalie was starting to realize she was really good at playing violin. When she was just 10, she won a competition where the prize was to play a solo with a full orchestra. At that point, Natalie was hooked, and she thought that if she just put the work in, she could be really good, so she went all in. But pursuing a professional career in classical music is hard. It's super competitive, and she started feeling the pressure. Those all-night practice sessions weren't as fun anymore. They started to feel heavier. Yeah, it it was really hard. It was very uh, internally imposed. 
you know, I never had someone saying to me, like, practice this much or else, right? But at the same time, there is really a structure, at least I, I feel, to the classical music world that kind of, it is like this impenetrable fortress in some ways. And I think historically it has also wanted to project that image of itself too. Like mm-hmm. we're kind of just at this level where people play perfectly. And the the difference now between one player who's really good and another player who's really good is, is more, at least in my mind, just in, in terms of interpretation. And so that does put this pressure to be perfect just to be able to join that upper echelon. And you have to be in that upper echelon if you want to have a job in music. I had a teacher tell me once, like, you kind of need to play like a soloist to get orchestra level jobs. Well, for people who don't understand the the process, like, yeah, sure. How challenging is that? Right? Like, how much work do you have to put in to even get to that point of having that conversation? Yeah. It's a hard question to answer because there's this very like um, nebulous balance of work and talent. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, right, people are born with certain levels of ability. I mean, it's a physical thing. It's like inescapably physical to play an instrument. And some people have longer arms or larger hands that are going to make things inherently easier for them. But what's really, I mean promising and at least seems democratic at first maybe about classical music is that so much of it just comes from the sheer amount of repetitive work that you put in um so there's always this sense that like if i just worked like a little bit harder if i practiced eight hours a day instead of five hours a day am i going to be able to get to the level of people who are born more talented um, or for whom it's just easier inherently than um, than it is for me it was almost like an addiction yes it was like it was walking this wire of really black and white failure and success that I felt were sort of mutually exclusive. Like if I didn't play it as well as I knew I could, even if there's not a big mistake, that's a failure. And the absoluteness of that and the black and whiteness of it created this like I would almost get this unstoppable urge right, to practice or to be like, I need to do more and I need to um, almost like to punish myself in some ways. But there was also a tremendous relief in then, you know, staying up till 3 a.m. just practicing, even if it was not in the most efficient way, because I was like, I like I have I have to do this. Like, I can't almost I can't stop myself from doing this. Like, I also deserve to be like really tired and, you know, have my, you know, finger be bleeding, like my callus coming off because I made that mistake. And I made that mistake because I didn't practice enough. So it was this like addictive cycle where. I would get like this hit from burrowing into it even more. There was like a tremendous amount of relief, right? Even in the midst of that, those really difficult practice sessions, because I was like, I'm doing the most that I can do. I know that I'm doing the most I can do. I have certainty about it. So I need to keep doing it, Hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, you touched on a little bit of the of the cultural factors when you talked yeah. about your parents. How much did your own cultural identity factor into the pressure you were dealing with? Ah, that's a great question. Um, there's a couple ways in which it did. I think the first thing is that in Korean culture, and I think in just a lot of East Asian cultures, there's really a great premium placed on like the best way I can describe it is grunt work, like the like banging your head against a wall. Mm-hmm until it collapses. And um, there's a lot of faith placed in that. 
like basically I felt like there's not really a length that you shouldn't go to just in terms of being willing to put in that kind of work and sacrifice. The other is that there's a very interesting phenomenon that I'm sure you know of that uh, Asians are very successful in Western classical music. I think that's because of the fact that classical music is something that responds so much to hard work. Mm. Um, and uh, that's something that Asians are familiar with. Um, but there's also, at least in my own experience, there was this sense that as my family and other Koreans um, like have tried to assimilate into American culture, there was this sense that um, the best way to do that and the way to be accepted is to wholly embrace the culture that you're trying to enter. So if you look at classical music, right, it's kind of, it's the pinnacle, or some people would say it's the pinnacle of traditional European Western art. And I do think trying to get really good at that is this way of saying, like, I've, like, I've arrived in your country and in your world. I can, um, like, be really good at this and you'll accept me. And then this is also something that can belong to me, too. A lot of the racism that Asian musicians encounter in the classical music world comes from people saying like, oh, well, they kind of play like robots, like their technique mm. is so good. But like Yo-Yo Ma actually uh, has said in, in interviews that the question that he used to get asked often, like when he would play Bach in Germany is, how can an Oriental like you really understand Bach? And so there's this sense that the more you're trying to join that world, like the more you kind of reveal yourself as this imposter, because if you can never really understand Bach, but you spend your whole life, you know, trying to achieve this technical proficiency at it, it kind of almost reveals you as this try hard, right? It, it shows more that you don't belong. And so I think that's a very alienating experience that a yeah. lot of Asian musicians have in the classical music world. And um, that also shows the cultural pressure because you just can't win. At you, that I point. was just going to say that yeah. it's a lose lose situation. Exactly. Yeah. Because <laughs> on the other hand, it's like, oh, that person is Asian. They must be really good at this instrument. Yeah, for sure. This is going to be an excellent concert, right? So you had to match that. Exactly. Despite all this pressure, Natalie still loved playing the violin. And as she progressed in her teenage years, she was becoming a stronger player. She even stopped by the Colorado Public Radio Performance Studio to record a piece with her sister. All of this success meant the stakes were getting higher. And when Natalie was a junior in high school, she noticed a distinct shift. Her performances felt different. I started to just be on stage and feel absolutely flooded with nerves in a way that I had never experienced. And the way that that manifested itself was I actually felt like time had stopped in the performance. And I mean, I think that would be a terrible feeling to have in any experience. But because, I mean, music isn't really anything but, you know, structured temporal flow, like as expressed through patterns of rhythm and harmony and form to feel time stop it it felt like I couldn't get beyond the certain moment in the piece where I was and so I had that experience I think maybe yeah first in junior as mm. a junior in high school and then it kept repeating itself and basically repeated itself all the way up through college and then I would start to get really afraid to perform because I was afraid to feel that and it was interesting to feel like it always manifested as this a feeling of being out of the flow of time. Like that was very also, I think, existential and scary. 
one performance really stands out. Natalie was performing a notoriously hard piece, La Campanella by Paganini. This version you're hearing right now is performed by a different violinist, but just listen to how challenging this piece is. So I was getting to this run at the end of the piece. I could get it sometimes in practice, but I just kind of sort of fixated on it. And there was a voice in my head that said, you're gonna mess up this run. Especially because the performance up to that point had been going quite well, like almost surprisingly well. And so when I get to that run, it was almost like I had to sacrifice it on the altar of everything else having <laughs> gone somewhat according to plan. It was a certainty that it was going to go wrong, and I almost felt like I was creating that for myself. That was an incredibly powerful feeling. And it ended with me, like, theatrically like losing grip of my bow. <laughs> it was like I whiffed it, not on purpose, but I knew I was going to do it, mm. if that makes sense. It's like a form of sabotage, <laughs> self-sabotage. Very much so, yeah. And I, that sort of line that you walk in situations of self-sabotage, of being in control, not in control, which is so terrifying. Being not in control almost feels like you are at the same time, or you're in control and so you mess all of it up, you destroy it. I still remember actually the crawling shame that was just all over and like not knowing how to locate myself in that moment. Like why was I so out of control? But mm. also I knew it was gonna happen. It was a pivotal moment mm, yeah. um, in how I thought of myself as a violinist and, when, and it's the first time that I had really had a performance suffer in a way that was maybe noticeable to other people, not yeah. just to me, from that anxiety. So it was the first time that I was like, mm, maybe this is a problem. <laughs> and it was a problem, one that would take years for Natalie to face. How she did it? After the break. Support for Back From Broken comes from Step Denver, a nonprofit giving men with nowhere else to turn the opportunity to overcome addiction through sobriety, work, accountability, and community. Learn more at stepdenver.org. Hey, it's Vic. I really appreciate you being a Back From Broken listener. It means a lot. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you take a moment to find Back From Broken on whatever podcast app you use, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and give us a like, a rating, and even a review? If you think what we're doing matters... If you think it's important to talk about recovery with compassion and hope, all you got to do to help spread the word is like, rate, or review this podcast. It really does help other people find Back From Broken. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio. Natalie Hodges kept working to push through her performance anxiety, and she had plenty of success. She went on to study music at Harvard. But that moment of time stopping during her performance just continued to eat away at her, and she wanted to know why it kept happening. 
So as a sophomore in a biology class, she did a lot of research on how brains work. There were studies about this stuff, and learning about the neurological science behind it was a huge relief to Natalie. Getting that bit of understanding helped, but it didn't mean she stopped chasing her dreams. She was still practicing long hours late into the night. During Natalie's junior year, she geared up for a competition hosted by the orchestra at Harvard. I wanted to compete. I prepared the Brahms concerto, which is one of my favorite violin concertos ever. It's It's so beautiful. Yeah. I prepared, I think, harder for that than anything I had in my life. And I also prepared smarter. Like, I was, at this point, I was getting better at practicing. I was trying to figure out a way to, you know, to be more efficient so I'm not just blindly, you know, banging my head against the wall, repeating the same runs over and over. So I felt like I had practiced in a very creative way, and I felt pretty confident um, going in. And I went in and did my audition, and it was actually one of the best performances that I've ever given. Okay. I just, I felt, not only in terms of, I think, how it, how it came out, but just how I felt when I was playing. I felt really free, more creative, and spontaneous. And I knew, right, when that happens to you, you just, you know, like you're making something yep. in time, and it feels good. I gave everything that I had. And uh, I didn't win. I came in second. I, yeah, I was the runner-up. I just remember after I they announced the result, um, and I was like, it was okay. Like I was very happy for the person who won. It was a beautiful day in the fall, and I sat there and I just bawled. I just cried, um, and if I felt like something was kind of like leaving my body, it was all of the tension of that performance. Wow. But it was also, yeah, it was a really it was a really strange moment. It was almost like when you're kind of consciously like falling out of love, like it feels like something is is go is being released. You're just letting go. You had all these struggles and you were yeah. in your head for so long. And, and finally you just said, wow, I really enjoy how I'm playing right now. And who gives a damn if I win? All these feelings are coming out. Exactly. But there was also um, this sense too that like I played my best and it wasn't enough. And no matter what, it's not going to be enough mm. in terms of a professional career at the at the level that I want to pursue one. And that was the first time that I really knew that. I just remember having to make this choice. And I'd also majored in English and had really fallen in love with literature and writing during my college experience. And I remember actually sitting in the common room of the house where I lived and just thinking, like, it's not my voice and I it was such a a weird phrase to sort of have pop into my head and have come to me but I actually called my mom I told her I said it's not violin is not my voice Mm. and I didn't really know why I was playing anymore aside from to to meet these certain standards or to to soothe the desperation that I felt when I couldn't meet them like that was my reason to practice at that point so it, it didn't really feel like I was saying things with my music what a revelation yeah, you it was know. terrible. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Um, but freeing also. Mm. And how'd your mom feel about the decision? She was so supportive. She just said, that's okay. She said, you're not gonna... She's like, you've worked so hard, there's nothing to regret. Mm. 
And that was a piece of reassurance that I was really grateful for. Because I, I think, was so, I was predisposed to kind of think, oh, well, like, is this from not trying hard enough? Or I could always, that would always be something that I could question. And she reassured me that it was something that I shouldn't question. So Natalie let go of her dream of becoming a professional violinist. But her problems didn't go away. She still experienced anxiety. It just wasn't on a stage anymore. In order for Natalie to truly recover, she needed to get to the bottom of where that anxiety came from. During her senior year, she built on the research around performance anxiety that she had done earlier in her college career. And learning that scientists had observed other people experiencing this too helped Natalie feel like she wasn't alone. Eventually, she wrote a thesis project that combined science and memoir. It was so good, she actually got a book deal after graduating from Harvard in 2019. But a monkey wrench was thrown into Natalie's plans during the pandemic lockdown. I came home and I was working on turning my thesis manuscript into the book, revising it um, so that I could get it published. Because I didn't have violin anymore, because I I was at this point kind of like, I'm not going to apply to graduate school, that period of my life in which violin is this really central column is done. Like the column has come down. Mm -hmm. And the anxiety, strife, and the purpose that violin had held, all of that didn't have anywhere to go anymore. There was no container for it. There wasn't something that I could just go and do for five hours a day and feel like I was making progress or working on something. Um, I didn't have that anymore. And then I think the confluence of that with COVID, the isolation of yeah. that um, was was very difficult. That's a lot to deal with. Yeah. And you struggled, right? I did. Yeah. I was lucky to be at my mom's house. I was living with her and then my siblings were all home during that time. So that was a nice element of it that I think really saved me. But basically the uh, the struggle that I ended up having was this surge of intrusive thoughts about anything that you can possibly imagine. Like I really struggled with anxiety about my health, which of course makes sense since it's COVID. Like I thought, you know, I would wake up and think that I had some terminal illness. I would wake up the next day, think I had another terminal illness. I had so many terminal illnesses during that time. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and I have anxiety about other things too. Um, and I would, all these thoughts that it was just so easy to um, latch on to and make real. And I remember just like lying in bed one night and feeling like I literally had, it wasn't a hallucination, but it was this almost visualization of myself. I felt like my head had cracked open and it felt like the the night was pouring in. Wow. To like into my skull. What a description. Yeah, it was, it was this really like awesome moment in just in the like really um, actually terrifying sense of that word and the, the largest sense of that word. It's been a lot of work to come to, to terms with the fact that that is there. But when I think back on it, it's almost like that, that sense of, of chaos like and chaos the chaos in me and probably the chaos that's in all of us and the chaos that's out there not actually really being separable from one another and how terrifying that is it was like this root thing that was maybe at the heart of the performance anxiety the need for 
control, right? And I'm sure violence prevented me from ever feeling that mm. up until that moment yeah. because it was something that promised control. And I had to come to terms with the fact that none of us can do that. Um, and I think that was what unleashed all of that grief and rage and anxiety that had been just bottled up for a really long you time. You put it so perfectly. I mean, that's just a lot to have in your head, you know. It was, I think that's what the, maybe the image of it cracking open. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and because and, you struggled to even get out of bed at that time, right? Yeah. I, I, I did get to a point where I was like, Gosh, like I, I sort of didn't really know whether I um, wanted to be around to mm. be experiencing that level of terror every day about stupid things and feeling like the shame of like, why can't I just get over this stuff? Like, why do I have to think I'm having a heart attack when I'm not? Like the frustration with myself, I think in the same way that I, in that performance when I dropped my bow, felt like, why did, why did I have to do that? Why wow. did I need to... Why do I need to sabotage my life in this way? Um, And so that, of course, I mean, as anyone who's struggled with anything like this knows, the compounding shame of going through that doesn't make it better. Without the violin to anchor herself to, Natalie needed a new outlet. All those hours that used to go into practicing started to get filled with other things. Writing became a way for her to feel grounded again, so she focused on her manuscript. She also started focusing on her mental health. I found this um, really wonderful therapist who uh, basically pulled me out of that night. That's great, yeah, because people need to hear that, that there are answers to these Mm -hmm. things, right? There is help for you if you need it. Yes, there is. And I remember I, I called her. She was actually the first therapist I found because I Googled therapist health anxiety Colorado and her (laughs) name came up and I called her and I just remember being very embarrassed by myself as I was going on this long tangent of oh my god I deal with all of these like these are my thoughts in this 10 minute consultation and she was very quiet and then after I said all of that and I was like pausing to breathe she said I can help you just those words those four words to be told that by another person like a stranger Like that sentence made one of the biggest differences in my life to know I wasn't past repair and that just somebody would even care enough to say that. That's beautiful. Just a little, just a little sentence. I can help you. Yeah. Just four words. Mm -hmm. So powerful. It was so powerful. They changed my life. She changed my life. Natalie started regular sessions with her new therapist to help her work through the anxiety she was feeling and process all these pent-up emotions. She was diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder. And the more she learned about OCD, the more she was learning about herself and how her negative thought patterns were holding her back. I would describe it as a stuckness that results from a thought that you don't want to have which is called an intrusive thought. Um, and everyone has those, but most people are able to brush them off pretty easily, be like, oh, that was weird that I just thought that. But with OCD, people, a thought pops into their mind like, oh, um, like a very common example is, did I not turn off the stove yep. when I left the house? And instead of just saying, oh, I, I probably did, I remember that, as someone with OCD would be like, I, I think I remember it, but 
what if the house is going to burn down yep, and yep. I will be responsible for killing my pet or my neighbors? And you're now, just kind of torturing yourself with the thought. Exactly. Now it's not just maybe I didn't turn off the stove. It's me. I'm going to be a murderer because I didn't yeah. turn off the stove. And then the third element that I would say, and I'm not a clinical expert in this by any means, but is that you have to do what's called a compulsion or a behavior to soothe the thought and make sure that the worst case scenario isn't going to happen. And then your brain is like, did you lock the door, right? Yeah. And it's all of that whole process all yeah, over again. It just takes off. Yeah. It could also be like what I struggled with was um, like you have a sensation in your body and we all get those all the time. But, you know, for someone with health-oriented OCD, it will be, oh, that's a symptom. And then you Google your symptom and Dr. Google tells you it's cancer or this could be a symptom of cancer. Then you Google that disease. And then you start matching what you read to things that you feel in your body. So it's, it's, it's a just rabbit like hole. It is. It is this, it's actually this feeling of like burrowing down and down and down into yourself. You get to this hell hole that feels like it's basically at the bottom of you. So how did you get better? Yeah. <laughs> it's still, I mean, it's still it's ongoing. It's a work in progress. Yeah. I guess like, it's weird to say like what I like about this diagnosis, but what's really interesting to me about it is that Having to be okay with uncertainty is so fundamental to the human condition, right? That's something that everybody, like, with that diagnosis or not, has to grapple with at some point in their lives. And so it's easy to just say, oh, it'll be fine, or to focus, you know, for me, really hard on violin so I didn't have to deal with that and to give myself this semblance of control. Um, but losing violin and then having to deal with this demon... I'm grateful for it in the end because I had to grapple with that really fundamental uncertainty that, you know, goes back to our mortality and our place in the universe and all of those things. That sounds hokey, but I had to confront it in a way that I never had been challenged to before, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. It's made me want to live better, to be a better person, a kinder person, to love harder. So I'm, I'm actually grateful for that in the end, even though some days it is still hard to get out of bed. Natalie's book is called Uncommon Measure, A Journey Through Music, Performance, and the Science of Time. It appeared on the National Book Award long list and was spotlighted as one of NPR's favorite books of 2022. As for Natalie's relationship with the violin these days, she does still play a little, but it's just for fun, for things like parties and weddings. I feel so happy to be connected by, you know, just the fact that I can play to people on special days of their lives or on really hard days of their lives and to get to come in and out of their experiences like that and to be connected to them for those moments. That's what music gives me now. And it's like the most precious thing to me. Back from Broken is a show about how we're all broken sometimes and how we need help from time to time. If you're struggling with anxiety or other mental health issues, you can find a list of resources at our website, backfrombroken.org. 
Thanks for listening to Back From Broken. Please review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find it. Back From Broken is a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Our lead producer today was Rebecca Romberg. Find a list of all the folks who worked hard to make this episode in the show notes. This podcast is made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Back From Broken at CPR.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Vic Vela. Support for Back From Broken comes from Step Denver, a nonprofit giving men with nowhere else to turn the opportunity to overcome addiction through sobriety, work, accountability, and community. Learn more at stepdenver.org.